I'm Joyce, the pack leader here at 99 Walks, and each week I have the unique pleasure of walking and talking with an incredible person who shares their tactical tips, advice, and a bit of their personal journey in this unique format. No, it's not a super polished, professionally produced podcast. It's just a conversation between two people while they are walking that you get to be a part of. So lace up your sneakers and head out the door with us. Hey everyone, Joyce here, and thank you so much for joining us for today's Walk and Talk. Our guest today is Monica Parker. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller. Oh, I said New York Times, Monica, Wall Street Journal. New York Times That's as right. well. Wall Street Journal. I, I take it, but it's not quite accurate. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm I have the book in my hand and of course I had New York Times on my mind, but the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Power of Wonder. She is a world-renowned speaker and a writer and authority on the future of work with a really interesting background that we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about today because I always love the journey of how people end up doing the work that they're doing. She's also the founder of Global Human Analytics and Change Consultancy Hatch, whose clients include many blue chip companies, including LinkedIn and Google and Prudential and one of my favorites, Lego. The Lego company is so interesting. Anyway, Monica, thank you for being here. We're going to talk about all the things really fast because we only have half an hour together and clearly we need more time than that. So welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Joyce. Thanks for having me. So I have spent some time with your book and I think we need to start at the very beginning of what is wonder? Yeah, so wonder is really interesting. It's kind of something of a shapeshifter, right? So we have wonder as the verb to wonder, which is what we would probably associate with curiosity. But then we also have wonder as a noun, which might be, say, the catalyst for the emotion of awe. And what I sought to do with my definition was to really link those two concepts into a single understanding of wonder that starts with openness, moves into curiosity, then absorption and awe. And it's really, I call it a cycle almost because it becomes additive in the sense that every time we experience one of the components of wonder, we become more likely to experience it in the future. And so I see it as sort of this upwardly additive cycle. So almost a practice. Mm, absolutely. Wonder can be a practice. It could be something that sort of lands um, and, and becomes that sort of smack across the face where, wow, you know, you see the Grand Canyon for the first time or maybe see your child take their first steps. Um, and it used to be thought that wonder had to be rare and fleeting. That was even the terms that the researchers used. But as time has gone on, they, we find now that wonder can be something that is a practice. It can be a lens through which we see the world and that it can be something that we experience in the quotidian. So it can be something that we, we have little nuggets uh, of it throughout our day. And I, wanna, I want to go immediately to why bother, why bother seeking wonder. Uh, but before we do that, so I, I'm highlighting that because I want to be sure that's where we go next. But before we do that, I guess what is so interesting about your book and the way you approach this whole concept of wonder is I feel like 
we have sort of, I shouldn't say we because I shouldn't speak for the collective, but I've always sort of considered wonder something that just happens fortuitously and not mm -hmm. something that I can cultivate. I think that's like the real game changer for me in your work. It's like I shouldn't just sit around waiting for wonder to happen. I should be a little bit more of an active participant in that. Is that kind of one of the reasons you wrote this book? Yeah, so that is part of it. Absolutely. I want people to know that it's something accessible um, and that it's not where we're just sort of, you know, waiting for it to come to our feet. Um, because if we do, then we're probably going to be waiting a long time, right? Some people are more wonder prone than others, so they're they may find that it occurs to them more often. But really, my goal was that people would see that this was something that we could practice and that would be like a muscle that we could exercise. And really, the reason I wrote the book was because my entire professional history has been, in one way or another, helping people through change, but existential change, big, big change. And I set about to try to understand why some people were more resilient than others. And what I found, looking back at my history and my previous work, and then also at the research, that people who hold their world with a great sense of wonder are just better able to deal with what life throws at them. And so my hope was that I could share that with people and that it would make people more resilient, that it would help people through big existential change more effectively. And then as I did more and more research, I found that actually it helps with so much more than even that, and that it's just something so beneficial that people don't understand. And so I wanted people to, to know that it was something that could be really, really good and also really accessible. And that does really go to kind of the answer to my, that was my follow-up question, sort of why bother cultivating wonder in your life? So I mean, the, 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 all those, the benefits yeah, all are, those, yep. the, the benefits are huge. They're both, sorry, they're both physiological and psychological. So psychologically, it makes us um, feel, it, it makes us feel less stressed. It makes us more generous, more humble, more desirous of contributing to um, people around us, people who are higher in the component elements of wonder perform better and work in school. They have more successful relationships. But physiologically, it's really fascinating. I think this is where probably some of your listeners and walkers will find the interest, is that it lowers our, uh, our stress hormones, so our cortisol. Um, it lowers our pro-inflammatory cytokines. So pro-inflammatory cytokines are the markers of certain diseases like heart disease, cancer, um, Alzheimer's. And that shows a direct biological pathway between wonder and better health. And you share a little bit in the book about kind of our natural inclinations throughout our lives to be more, uh, what's your expression, wonder, wonderful, wonder, wonder prone, wonder prone. I guess <laughs> that was what I was looking for. Um, can you share a little bit about those for different natural stages? Because we sort of have to start where we are, right? Sure, absolutely. So if we look at openness, the, the first element, which is openness to experience, that is a personality trait. Um, it's identified as what's known as one of the big five personality traits. So everyone has some degree of openness, um, and it really depends half on our genetics and half on our upbringing. 
Um, we can't necessarily change that aspect of our personality. There's some debate about how much you can change your personality. But certainly what you can do is maximize what you have. And the way to do that is to just expose yourself to new ideas, but in particular, new thinking. You can try new, you know, a new cuisine or go on a, a new holiday, but really it's about exposing yourself to new ideas. Then we move into curiosity, and certainly curiosity is a part trait, so a personality that we bring to the party. But curiosity is also a state, which means we can dial it up and down based on our environment. Um, absorption is something that is a little bit of a state and trait, as is awe. And so there are there's elements that we bring based on our genetics and based on our experiences. Um, but there are a lot of ways that we can dial up and down our wonder proneness with practice and with our environment and what we expose ourselves to. So can we dig in a little bit to the difference or the, not the difference, the interplay between wonder and awe? So uh, the emotion of awe has become uh, something that people are talking about a fair bit more over the last several years, and hopefully I've talked about it often uh, on this podcast, and hopefully it's a concept that people are, are familiar with. Share, if you would, a little bit of the interplay between awe and wonder. Yeah, so it, it really, there's different definitions, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Some people will say that awe and wonder are synonymous. Um, the way that I see awe is that it is uh, it sits under wonder, so it's one of the component parts of wonder, and it's really one of those moments that gives you some of the biggest benefit of the wonder cycle, but we don't always have to sort of be rewarded with that moment of awe to still have benefit. We can still be open, we can be curious, we can be absorbed, and maybe we won't always be rewarded with an awe moment. Um, but we can still have the benefit of wonder. And so I see awe as being a single component to the wonder cycle. Um, but there are certainly some of the benefits that we achieve from wonder in general, we would find from awe in itself. And again, there are beliefs that awe maybe don't have to be, um, it doesn't always have to be rare and fleeting. It can be something that we find more often. But I felt that simply to say that, you know, we could have an awe practice, it feels very, um, I, I guess it just doesn't feel very accessible to me, whereas I feel that if we start with something like openness and then move into curiosity, these are all, these are all emotions or experiences we probably feel are a bit closer to our capabilities. And so I wanted people to see what the on-ramp was, you know, starting from something very simple up to the big bang that would be awe. <laughs> it, um... It, it reminds me a little bit of kind of the interplay between delights and gratitude. And I've talked some about how a gratitude practice, while super valuable, is kind of challenging sometimes for me. And kind of the on-ramp for me around that is just to find delights, to find moments of things mm. in my life that delight me. And I feel a little bit like awe, as you say, is like we're going to find these big moments of awe, though you can find on your, you can find on your backyard, but it's about finding that moment and your wonder practice is a little bit more, frankly, of a practice of something you can cultivate. Mm. Mm. And gratitude is one of the things that is a wonder bringer. Absolutely. Anything that makes us feel small 
in the presence of a big world is really a, a great way to start building a wonder practice and gratitude can do that. And I love that idea of sort of delight being um, one of those ways to, to trigger that sense of gratitude. And so I, I, I think that gratitude as a practice can fill, fall into that. There's a lot of different behaviors that people already engage in that really are wonder bringers. So things like a gratitude practice, prayer is absolutely a way that we can tap into um, to wonder, wonder walks, which I think is something that obviously your audience would um, find very appealing. And, um, and then, of course, any way that we find wonder in culture, in each other, um, really just a lot of different entry points. And, and gratitude is one of them. So let's, let's get tactical, right? Let's assume that we are a person who is looking to access the benefits of wonder. And in order to make change and access more of that, we've got to take some action, right? So kind of where do we yep. start in our pursuit of wonder or our, how do we start building a wonder practice, if you will? So the first way I would say is that novelty, our brain notices newness. And most of the time our brain is an autopilot. And that's probably one of the reasons why we don't see the wonder that exists in our sphere, right? There's so much to be wondrous about, but we just don't notice it because our brain is really focused on getting from point A to point B as efficiently as possible. So the more that we can enter novelty into our world, we start to notice detail that would have been lost otherwise. So certainly, like I said, it can be taking a new route to work. It can be trying a new cuisine. But really trying to expose yourself to new ideas is one of the greatest ways to get yourself closer to wonder. Another way is what I call a slow thought practice. So anything that slows down the chattering mind in your head. And that can be meditation. It can be walking meditation. It can be a gratitude practice. Anything that quiets that monkey brain and allows you to be truly present in your environment, again, so that you notice what is there. And then another great way is a wonder walk. But what makes a wonder walk a wonder walk? You decide it is. That's it. It's really about the power of priming. You tell your brain, I am going to go on this walk and find three things to feel wonder-filled about. And your brain is now, I mean, this is one of the reasons why people, when they write down their goals, are more likely to achieve them. It's not some magic. It's just simply that your brain is dedicating more cognitive resources towards finding this thing that you've told it to. And so when, it go, when people go on the Wonder Walk, the research shows very clearly that if people are sent just on a regular walk, they gain some benefit. But really, their brain is caught up in, oh, well, I have to pack for this trip. Oh, I'm thinking about this work thing. They're not really present enough. But if you go on a wonder walk, if you say, I'm going to find wonder on this walk, you become instantly very present. And what they found is that people who went on wonder walks had lower uh, stress hormones. They uh, felt less stress for the week following. And even they had people take selfies and they had bigger smiles. And so it's really just about the power of presence and anything that we can do to do that. And I think it's interesting, your point about it being sometimes difficult to have a gratitude practice. And I think some of that is we live in a world that are filled with, I believe, what I would call happy chondriacs, people who feel that we are supposed to be happy all the time and that if we're not, there's something wrong with us. And I think that that's a lot of the self-help genre as well. And why I like wonder and think it's so approachable 
is that we can find wonder even in the most terrible moments of our lives. In loss, in grief, in chaos, we can still find moments of wonder. And I think that that's where wonder, again, can be more achievable as well, because it's not saying as a steady state, you must always be positive. You must always be happy. No, wonder is, is duly valence. It has a little bit of positive and a little bit of negative mixed together. And I think that becomes also a much more realistic emotional state to ask people to access on a regular basis. It goes to one of my favorite concepts uh, that I've been uh, talking about and thinking about a lot over the last year, maybe two. Uh, maybe this kind of really came home to me during the pandemic. And this is the idea of two things can be true. Uh, and that goes a little yep. bit to yep. what you're yep. saying. Uh, I mean, it's sort of, Absolutely. it's hard to wrap your mind around this idea that I can be profoundly sad and deeply grateful at the very same moment. Mm. You've hit the nail on the head. And actually, that is the one of the great ways to have a wonder practice is to is to cultivate that holding to seemingly opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. It stretches your brain, it makes it more plastic, and it allows you to see a degree of nuance that people who are very, um, who are very black and white, who don't see gray, they are not as wonder prone as people who ha see the gray areas, see the nuance. Because again, it's about those two competing ideas that um, that paradoxical thinking that exists that allows you to get closer to wonder. And I'm often asked, well, how do I make my kids more wonder prone? You know, maybe their schooling isn't doing it. And I say that museums are a great way to do that, but also just having conversations with them where you start helping them see that two ideas can sit in their brain and both be true at the same time. And that starts to sort of stretch their little noggins in a way that doesn't always happen in the school systems where they say there's one answer, that's what you're being, uh, you know, judged on and incentivized towards, as opposed to saying, well, let's talk about how both of these things could be true at the same time. And I, I want to go back actually to something that I had alluded to, but I want to circle back to it. Um, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm not remembering this correctly, but I thought in your book, you talked about this idea that we tend, human beings tend to be more wonderful, wonder present, Pro. wonder proud. <laughs> gosh, why keep, oh my gosh, Monica, why won't that stay? In, I gotta like write it down on the wall. Wonder prone. <laughs> whatever you want to say, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's whatever it means to you. It's um, more wonder prone at certain stages in our life. I, my recollection, and um, forgive me, I'm sure I'm mistaken, but it's like between 12 and 20 and then 65. Yep. Plus, is there correct? Am I remembering that correctly? Yep. And if so, can you dig into that a little bit and explain sure. why that is and how we fix it? Because I actually don't want to wait till I'm 65 to get wonder prone. <laughs> so we're super wonder prone as babies, right? We're just like little wonder machines where we're absorbing everything. Um, then when we start to sort of develop a degree of critical reasoning where we are um, in our teen, you know, our early teen years, where that's when we can start to, uh, of that idea of holding two opposing ideas in our brain at the same time, that's where we start to see nuance. And that's where our wonder, our sense of wonder becomes much richer. And then as we get much older, when we start to sort of see the end of our life as something that's very, 
um, feels that it could be quite present. And also, as we start to see other people's lives ending, we start to sense the, the again, it's where we feel small. We start to feel very small in the face of very big feelings and a very big world. And so it's, it's about, and that's also one of the, the periods where you can change your personality a little bit. Again, your personality tends to be formed by about the age 25. But in your 60s, there is some malleability there because you are sort of being confronted with a lot of, of, of big truths with a capital T. But one mm -hmm. of the ways that you can do that is just by engaging in the wonder practice. It really is like a muscle. The more you use it, the more the 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 stronger it will become curiosity being one of the great ones um we definitely become less curious as we age because we erroneously think there's less to be curious about and so being curious in particular about other people that's a great way to sort of grow that capability and we know that being curious genuinely curious about other people is basically the essence of empathy um and for anybody who is single out there um if you ask people genuine questions in the sense of true curiosity about another person, that person will find you more attractive. So that's a little uh, bit of uh, a little bit of uh, trivia um, for people out there. But it's really about practicing it over and over again, so that we just uh, don't lose that sense or we regain that sense of feeling like a small part of a bigger system. I don't know if this is. Uh, true or not, because maybe every generation feels this way, right? So I'm in my 50s, and I feel like the 20-somethings, the teens and the 20-somethings of our time are super friggin' cynical. And it would seem mm. to me that cynicism is a total wonder killer. Yes. I would right. agree with you. I don't I think that there are one of the challenges, and actually there is evidence that shows that the um, the current younger generation actually it has less empathy. There's a researcher named Jamil Zaki, and he's found that empathy levels have been consistently dropping for the last 50 years. Now, this isn't because this group of uh, young people, you know, are hate other people. It's that the world that they have been brought up in has has given them less options. Um, you think these are a lot of people who won't, won't ever be able to own a house. They're saddled with a lot of debt. And so they end up becoming a, li a little bit more insular because they feel that they need to protect their own future. So it becomes harder for them to, to sort of have that sense of openness. So you're absolutely right that cynicism is a wonder killer. So it's about helping that generation feel a sense of openness about the world and about each other and helping them see that while they may not have the same opportunities that generations before them had, that there is still a benefit to being quite open to their environment and to the world. I don't know. I'm hard pressed to, I, I guess I'm hard pressed to feel like that generation Oh my gosh, this is going to sound so terrible, but I'm hard pressed to go to like the boo-hoo, you guys don't have a lot of opportunity because um, I guess one of the, one of my personal gifts is I sort of see it as a world of opportunities, right? We've, there are, I there think... are things about our world right now that have never been better. There are things that are totally crappy, 
but there are a lot of things that have never been better. And I just feel like it's a world of possibility for everybody, especially a 22-year-old. I think that there's a couple of things at play. One is that just it's truly a lot of it financially. They they will be the first generation that will not do as well, that will not do better than their, their parents before them. It has always been sort of this natural progression that the next generation has more than what came before. This is the first generation where that's just simply not the case. But also some of this is about the advent of social networks, the advent of the way that that news is communicated. And there's an old uh, expression in journalism that says that it bleeds, it leads. And so what you have is a lot of negativity that is being um, sort of force fed to this generation as well. And so they are not, see, they're not able to see or they're not shown as much the opportunities that exist and that perhaps some of the brass rings that were held up as being the thing that they should chase, that maybe it's time for that to go by the wayside and that there are other opportunities that exist for them that are different. Um, but I think some of this really comes down to the way that information is processed and the way that they receive it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Though I, I was reflecting a little bit when you said this is the first generation that may not have more than their parents and the generation before them. And I'm sort of like, I think we all have enough. Not all of us, but you know, like on some level, we've got to stop chasing and we've got to start being a little bit more present. Absolutely. I think being present and, you know, one of the points I do make in the book is that um, that I think it's about being present, but also recognizing, you know, a certain degree of privilege in that if you are working two jobs and um, and you're a single mom, it's going to be really hard for you to find wonder if you're not getting enough sleep be really hard for you to find wonder and so recognizing that a lot of these like i think almost any self-help mechanism has to recognize that it requires a degree of both mental space and physical time right and to have that that ability for some people is genuinely a privilege um and so i think that that's one of the things if we can even just allow people enough sleep um, that's a great, that's another great way to sort of create a wonder practice, just getting enough sleep. And you'd be amazed at how many people aren't even able to access that on a regular basis. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, it's funny because that this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, because I feel like there is so much out there around the, you know, just say no, just stop working so hard. And the people who are espousing that, most of them are really financially secure. And yeah. it rings sort yeah. of hollow, you know, around. Uh, but I, but there, so there's, there's a privilege to that for sure. But there's also just this constant, as a society, this constant compare and despair, this constant chasing of the next thing. Uh, the entire hedonic treadmill is also has to be a wonder killer. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, I think one of the reasons why I talk about it's not worth chasing happiness, it's better to chase wonder, because we're just so bad at knowing what makes us happy. And we tend to chase the hedonic as opposed to the eudaimonic. So we really do chase mm. the stuff 
as opposed to the meaning. Um, and if we remove that out of the equation and instead look for wonder-bringing um, experiences and, um, and events in our life, then we start to remove a lot of that hedonic chasing out of the sphere. Um, and I think that that's, that becomes a very positive, additive um, way to, to view the world as opposed to absolutely the hedonic treadmill and even to some degree some of the eudaimonic and some of the self-help um, that's very focused on, well, if you just fix yourself, not recognizing that, you know, there are systems in place that make that difficult, but we can still find the wonder even in difficult times. And I think that's actually the magic of what it is you are um, preaching, for lack of a better word, which is our ability to find wonder in our daily lives and in our life and our, willing, our ability to look for the moments of wonder and uh, our, I guess, our power around that. Mm. And I think it is right, empowering like, once you recognize that even in the in the darkest times, you can say, well, where's the wonder here? And recognize that you will gain some of the same benefits you do as you when you have, you know, a, a more positive wonder experiences. And we see that in like stories of, you know, people at one of the stories in the book, I talk about someone who is adrift at sea. For three months, we just heard of this gentleman who was found and um, mm -hmm, who was yep. adrift with his dog. Yeah, with his and, dog. And he said. Yeah. yeah, and some of the things that he said, you know, uh, are reflective of that. That there are moments of of an of intense wonder, and if you can hold that, you become more resilient. And we see it in, you know, in in earthquakes. We see it in in hurricanes. We see it even at looking like the the war in Ukraine. We can't be happy looking at that, but we can absolutely be in wonder and the wonder of the bravery and the wonder of people. They're able to still find, you know, connection in that environment. And, and that is another way that I really feel like this emotional experience is so much more accessible for people. Uh, Monica, we're totally out of time, but I want to, um, I want to ask you one last question, which is not a little question. So I'm hesitant to do it at the top of the hour, but I'm going to do it anyway, <laughs> which it is, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big question. And, and that is, we were talking earlier and you alluded to it again, kind of around the two things can be true. So just focusing for a moment on, on what's happening in Ukraine uh, as a mirror, as a window into this. But I think on some level, we feel guilty experiencing wonder or seeing the positive in the tragedy. I think that's, for me at least, that's part of what holds me back because I don't want to look at this human tragedy and say there are moments of beauty in this because does that diminish the, the tragic nature of it? How do we kind of I, reconcile I, I those two things? Yeah, and I think that is part of, of, of the, the, the complexity of wonder. And in fact, when people, they call it the silver linings effect, that you can still see that. And people who are able to see that are more resilient. And so I don't see it. I, I think that people do tend to feel guilty if they are, if they're not. And this is one of the reasons also why I think happiness isn't great, 
because we often feel guilty. Oh, I should be happy. But I think if we allow ourselves to say, I'm not happy, I'm, I'm incredibly, I'm grieving for what this nation is losing. But at the same time, I see the beauty that exists in what people are doing for each other. So I think by making that a full statement, not just saying I see the beauty, but by recognizing I see the pain, but I also see the beauty. And it's the combination of those two things that create the sense of wonder. I think if we allow ourselves to feel both emotions at the same time, that's where the wonder is. I love that. And that is, I think, a perfect place to end our brief conversation today. So the book is The Power of Wonder. And Monica, if people want to learn more about you and wonder and the work that you do, where are the best places out there in the interwebs to find you? Yep, you can find me at monica-parker.com or on social at Monica C. Parker. And I also have a newsletter, so if anyone wants to keep up with me, you can sign up for that as well. And it's just little nuggets of wonder in your mailbox every Wonder Wednesday, which is today. Happy Wonder Wednesday, Joyce. Happy Wonder Wednesday. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time and sharing your wonder wisdom. Thank you so much, Joyce. You have a great one. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for today's Walk and Talk. Catch new episodes featuring inspiring guests every week and all the places podcasts live. Until then, I wish you happy trails.